Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So last week we studied Dina. And you know I've always taught on the triennial cycle, that I always teach the triennial reading, always. So for 25 years I've been teaching the triennial readings. I don't know how I never saw this before. But last week we studied the story of Dina, who goes out, right, and who um, has an experience that violates the agreements of what a, a virgin daughter is supposed to do and be and behave like in Israel. Um, and we know what happens, right? Then all this craziness happens after that. So in this week's Torah portion, um, we are studying Tamar. So I want you to hold Dina, her story, and Tam- like read Tamar through the lens of Dina last week, because I just never have done that before. It's like, oh my gosh, I never saw that. All right, so Tamar, this is stuck in the middle of the Joseph stuff. So Joseph has just been sold by his brothers into slavery. Remember, they threw him in the pit, and the plan was to let him die. That was the original plan. They Then they decide to sell him uh, instead of let him die. So... Uh, that so that's then there's a break in the action and begins our triennial section. So we're in the second year of the triennial reading, which means we're in the second third of every portion, right? So we're in the middle of every parsha. So beginning of the parsha is Joseph, you know that that story and the dreamer, blah blah blah. He gets sold into slavery. That's really bad. Then um, we have this part, and then we'll have the rest of the Joseph novella, which finishes out the book of Genesis. Sorry. So I just want to place the story for you, because this is a serious break in the action. So as Bert knows, um, this was the Torah portion when I came to audition for the associate rabbi job. Robert's nodding. He remembers. So of all the things one could pick to teach, I could have picked something about Joseph and his brothers and jealousy and ups and downs and fate and blah, blah, blah. But no. I chose to teach Tamar. So you won't, under, you won't appreciate that until we read the story. All right. So we're at the beginning of chapter 38 of the book of Genesis. And it was at that time, you know, this is the way we get, you know, the introduction to some of these stories. You know, after those events, it was at that time that Yehuda, Judah, left his brothers and camped near a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. All right. So what happened with, with Dina? What was Dina doing when she got in trouble? Dina was going out to visit the daughters of the land, right? Judah's doing the same thing. Judah's going out and he's hanging out near an Adulamite whose name was Hira. So Judah goes out to meet the people of the land and nothing bad happens because he is a boy, a man, right? So he's a man. He gets to do what he wants. He gets to go out and hang out with the people of the land and nothing catastrophic is going to befall him. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman, uh, uh, a Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and he cohabited with her. He is allowed to find a woman of the land attractive. Remember what happened for Dina? She Shechem loved her. We don't know what Dina felt, but Shechem loved her. Uh, Still, you can't do that. You don't get to do that. But Yehuda does. As a man, he can see a woman of the land 
and sleep with her and it's not a problem. He can just decide to marry her. Okay. Now remember, who else are they going to marry? Jacob's family was endogamous. They married within the clan, but he and Laban have separated, right? So who, who are, and remember what happened last week? His sons killed all the Shechemites, right? All the, the king and the prince that slept with Dina, all murdered by Jacob's kids. The marriage market is not exactly hugely open to them, right? They, they can't marry from their family because they're no longer speaking to them. They just murdered a whole town of people. Now, like, who's he? They have to marry strangers. They have to marry outside the clan. Um, and then whoever that is will become part of the clan. So he, ma- he marries the daughter of a Canaanite, Shua, and she bears a son and names him Er. She conceives again and names that son Onan. Once again, she bore a say, uh, son and named him Shela. He was at Chazib when she bore him. Three sons. So if anybody wants to make this a story about disparaging Canaanite women, you don't have a leg to stand on. Three sons, boom, boom, boom. That, that is a blessed marriage. So now Yehuda's job is to get a wife for his son. So this has been a, a couple of years, right? This has been a bunch of years because he's ready to marry off his son. So, you know, this has been at least, you know, at least 10 years. All right. Judah got a wife for heir, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. Now this is important. Names matter. Tamar means date palm. But date palms, although they are very fertile and produce a precious crop in Israel, a a precious source of carbohydrates in in Israel, um, they they are very finicky about how they are pollinated and often takes human intervention to pollinate date palms. So the tamar is fertile, but you have to work really hard and you have to, you have to manipulate things to often get that tree to be fertile, to pollinate it. So just keep that in mind. All right. So she's married now. Tamar's married to Judah's firstborn son. Er, Judah's firstborn was displeasing to yud heh and yud heh took his life. God killed him. Again, if we have any questions about, is this because she's Canaanite? It, the text could not be more clear. It is something that Er does that makes God angry. God kills him. So Judah says to Onan, join with your brother's wife and do your duty by her as a brother-in-law and provide offspring for your brother. This is leveret marriage. The laws of uh, incest, meaning you can't sleep with your brother's wife, are suspended if the brother dies, leaving no children, meaning no sons. If that happens, then the surviving brother has the obligation to inseminate his brother's wife so that she may have a son that is considered the heir of the dead brother. So this provides the dead brother with offspring because it's considered unnatural that he should die without offspring. So the way you fix that, the brother goes in, sleeps with her, impregnates her. Then he's relieved of his duties, by the way. Then it becomes incest again. All right. 
So Judah says to his son, do what you're supposed to do. You need to go impregnate Tamar for your dead brother. But Onan, knowing that the seed would not count as his, meaning if he produces an heir for his dead brother, it's competition. It's going to take away from what he inherits. And the firstborn, right? If it's the firstborn, it's a double portion. The firstborn inherits a double portion. So Onan is like, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think so. So, but he doesn't want to make daddy mad. So he goes into Tamar and uh, we we, uh, don't know exactly what goes on, but what we know is that he performs coitus interruptus and he he, uh, ejaculates on the ground. So as not to impregnate Tamar. This is where the term onanism comes from. Uh, It's from here. It's from Onan. Spilling a seed on the ground. This is a big, big no-no. What he did was displeasing to Yudhei So he's gone also. He's dead also. Judah's now lost two sons at a young age, right? They were, he was just married, the older one. This is a young age. What should happen now? Now, if the third brother is 10 years old or older, he's to be given to Tamar as the lever. Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, stay as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he too might die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. All right. We know the status of ancient Near Eastern women. Her sexuality belongs to whom? her father, and then her husband. Tamar right now is stuck. She's completely stuck. She's being treated with the status of widow, but she's been betrothed to Judah's third son, who Judah does not intend to give her as a husband. So she doesn't know that yet, but she will, right? So he's not going to give her his son because he's afraid she's the cause of all the death, the black widow, if you will. And so, um, so he says, no way. And I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to protect my third son, but what does this do to Tamar? It takes off the table, any possibility of her having a child of her changing her status. She's as a widow, she could have controlled her sexuality and she could have married again, but not, not now Judah has tied her status up with being betrothed to his son. A long time afterward. All right. So years go by. Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah died. When his period of mourning was over, Judah went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers together with his friend, his buddy. Remember his buddy Hira, the Adulamite. So he goes with his buddy and they go sheep shearing. When you take the sheep to be sheared, it is a long trip and you're going to be there. For a while. I don't know a lot about sheep shearing, but I've studied Torah a long time. And so I know it's like three, four, five days they're going to be dealing with sheep shearing. And Tamar was told, your father-in-law is coming up to Timnah for the sheep shearing. She's not been given, many, many years later, she's not been given to his third son. What did she do? She took off her widow's garb, covered her face with a veil, and wrapping herself up, sat down at the entrance to, you got to love the Torah. You got to love Torah. You don't get it if you don't know Hebrew. 
Um, so you're going to read that a name or something. It's a but it's better. The place is called Fetach Enayim, the opening of the eyes. That's where she goes. She sits at a place called Fetach Enayim, the opening of the eyes, which is on the road to Timna, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him as wife. When Judah saw her, he took her for a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here, let me sleep with you. For he did not know she was his daughter-in-law. What she asked, will you pay for sleeping with me? And he replied, I will send a kid from my flock. But she said, you must leave a pledge until you have sent it. So he's, he's not close enough to the sheep to just bring her one, right? Like presumably this is on his time off and right. He's, he's going for a night out. <clears throat> but she says, you need to leave something with me. You need to leave me your driver's license. Um, You're going to pay me a really lovely payment. That's a nice payment, a sheep. That's lovely, a kid, right? That's great, a baby sheep. Uh, But if you think I'm going to take you on your word and the deed is done and I got nothing, I I didn't come down with yesterday's rain. Thank you very much. Leave me your driver's license and your American Express platinum card and we got a deal. And he said, well, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and cord and the staff which you carry. This is the driver's license, right? This is something that you are identified by. Your seal and cord are never out of your uh, control ever because somebody can charge, right? A Mercedes on it. If they have your identifying information, they can sign a deal that they're going to buy a Mercedes with that seal and cord. Cause that's how you signed a document in the ancient near East. You rolled your seal in wet clay. Deals were written in cuneiform in wet clay with a stylus. So you signed literally with this, that he's leaving her and the staff again, something that was very identified made, you know, it was how someone identified you. So he gave them to her. He's figuring he's just going to go get the sheep in the morning and have it sent to her and she'll return his driver's license and credit card. He slept with her and she conceived by him. Then she went on her way. She took off her veil and again put on her widow's garb. Judah sent the kid by his friend, the Adulamite, to redeem the pledge from the woman, but he can't find her. She has disappeared. This is way before Cinderella, people. He inquired of the people of that town, where is that co-prostitute? The one at Fetach Enayim, like Enayim, in the eyes by the road at that place called Eyes. And they said, there's been no prostitute here. So he, so he returned to Judah and said, I could not find her. Moreover, the townspeople said, there's been no prostitute here. Judah said, let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. I did send her this kid, but you did not find her, right? So Judah does not want to make too big a deal of this. He's a little embarrassed, right? Um, And he's, you know, he's not a young guy. Um, And he's out there, you know, tramping around. So like, and and now he can't find, he just does not want to make a big deal of this, right? He he says it himself. He doesn't want to become a laughingstock. He kept his end of the deal and she was gone. We asked 
The townspeople know nothing about it. We're out of here. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. She is with child by harlotry. What does Judah say? Bring her out and let her be burned. We talked about honor killings. We talked about, right, people setting their sisters on fire. Um, here it is, right here. It's not even pushing it. It's right here. As she was being brought out, she's being brought out for public execution. She's going to be burned to death. She sent this message to her father-in-law. I am with child by the man to whom these belong. And she added, examine these. Whose seal and cord and staff are these? Now, what's important for you to know, for like Barry, who speaks Hebrew, um, he's going to look right there and it says, Vatomer. Whoa. Vatomer. And she said, verse 25, what does she say? Hakerna. It's not examine, really. It's recognize, please. To whom does this stuff belong? All right, remember that. Hakerna. If you already know where I'm going and why I'm lifting it up, great. You'll tell me when, when I unmute you. Hakerna. Notice, please. Recognize, please. To whom do these belong? That's who I'm pregnant by. Judah recognized them. Uh, yeah, duh. It's his driver's license. Judah recognized them and says, she is more right than I am. Insomuch as I did not give her my son, Shelah. And he was not intimate with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, <gasps> there were twins in her womb. While she was in labor, one of them put out his hand and the midwife tied a crimson thread on the hand to signify this one came out first. But then he drew back his hand and out came his brother. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself, Paretz. So she named him Paretz. Afterward, his brother came out on whose hand was the crimson thread and he was named Zarach. What you need to know which you can't know unless you have a teacher. We call this job security. Paretz becomes a uh, ancestor of Ruth. Ruth becomes the ancestress of whom? David. Who's going to come from the house of David? Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. This act done by Tamar brings into the world the ancestor of the Messiah. If there is any doubt about how Torah feels, about what Tamar did, Judah says it, she gets, gives birth to male twins and an ancestor of the Messiah. Torah clearly approves of what Tamar did and Judah was wrong. All right, I'm gonna stop for a second. So, Rabbi, how did you how did you spin that in your talk in your um, job talk? <laughs> right, it was so much fun. You should have seen people's faces. They were like, "Wait, this is what she's teaching? Is she sure? Does she know what she's teaching?" But um, yeah, it's fabulous. I love this story. I love this story. All right, first of all, first of all, first of all, Judah. We know Judah is the son who's going to have progeny and his progeny are going to be 
the ones where King David makes his, his capital, right? It happens in Judah. So it is not Judah who looks so great in this story, right? It's Tamar who is righteous. It's Tamar who does whatever it's going to take um, to fulfill her obligation, which is to bring right sons into the world. It's those sons that are going to, to that's the only sons left to Judah. He would have no descendants if it weren't for Tamar. There wouldn't be a tribe of Judah. And Judah's going to be the big shot tribe, right, where David's uh, kingdom is going to be. All right. So that's number one. It's, I love it for that, that, you know, it's, it's really, um, t- it's Tamar who's responsible for the entire tribe of Judah. And, and, and the Judeans who tell this story know that. They're telling this about their ancestress. All right. What does Tamar do? So let's, let's remember who we're dealing with here. Who is the patriarch of this family? Jacob, right? How did Jacob get to be where he was in Haran with Lavan? How did he get there again? Oh, yeah. He stole the birthright from his brother Esav. How did he do that? He put on Esav's clothes and disguised himself and deceived his father Isaac by putting on Esau's clothing. Tamar puts on, takes off her widow's garb, puts on other clothing to deceive Judah. So what the brothers, uh, what, what Jacob did to his brother, right? Now Tamar does to his son, but it gets better. Hakerna, recognize please. To whom do these belong? This is exactly what the brothers say to Jacob when they bring him Joseph's bloody coat. They bring him Joseph. Barry's nodding. They bring Jake. They bring Jacob Joseph's bloody coat, and they say, "Hakerna, recognize, please. To whom does this belong?" They never say he's dead. They deceive Jacob into thinking his brother, his son is dead. His beloved son, his favorite son is dead. They deceive him with the coat. Judah is deceived by Tamar with what she's wearing. So she can, right? This is all, this is all about, you know, clothing being used to confuse identity and to deceive. In the case of Jacob, it's to gain what he wants in terms of, you know, the, what he's taking from Esau. In the case of the brothers, it's because they want to cover their tracks because they got rid of Joseph, right? Both, in both cases, threats, you know, from, from rival brothers is what the deception is about. In this case, Tamar's doing the exact same thing, but for righteous causes, Tamar's story is stuck right in the middle. She's doing the exact same thing, but not to take anything. It's to produce something. It's to give something. It's going to give Judah heirs and her dead husband an heir. All right. Barry saying, interestingly, Joseph's been eaten by an animal that didn't rip his coat up into pieces, right? Like, how did the coat survive? <laughs> right? How did, how did that happen? 
like like, like the animal kind of unwrapped Joseph, you know, just ate what was inside the wrapper. I don't know. So um, it's a good question. All right. So, so Tamar is doing the same things that this family is famous for deception using clothing as deception. And she's doing it, however, for, um, for positive purposes. Um, and Judah, Judah is doing wrong. He's not following the laws of Israel where the, where the brothers should be given to her in leveret marriage and give her the opportunity to fulfill right. Her destiny or let her go. Right. Or let her be a widow and then she can control her destiny, but not if she's betrothed to his son and can't get uh, anything by it. So how much do you love that she sits at a place called the opening of the eyes? You have to love that. Right. She sits at a place called the opening of the eyes. Judah does not see her. What is she counting on? She's counting on male objectification of women, isn't she? doesn't matter really who she is to Judah. He wants to, he just wants to get some. He just needs a female. He doesn't really care who it is. And so, so she counts on the fact that his eyes do not see. His eyes are closed to who she is because he doesn't care. That's fine. That's a, that's the role of a prostitute. That's fine. They have the right to control their sexuality and they have a right to choose who they're going to have intercourse with, right? That's more freedom than, right? Other women had. So it's fine. Torah doesn't judge it, right? It's totally fine. But she's using the fact that she knows he won't see her. We have to presume, even though she was covered and veiled sitting by the side of the road, we have to presume once they're being intimate, she's not veiled, and they're sitting at Petach Enayim. They're sitting at the opening of the eyes. He does not see her. Okay, so that's that's amazing. Um, what else uh, do I want to make sure I cover? Um, so we talked last week with Dina. That's the other thing I wanted to say. So Dina, last week, she sleeps with Shechem. And we talked about, we don't know if it's consensual or not, but it doesn't matter because she does, she's not entitled to consent. Her sexuality belongs to her father and then to her husband. In this case, it belonged to her father. And any violation of that would reflect on her father and her brothers. That's why the brothers take revenge and slaughter the whole town, right? Remember, we talked about with Dina, once word gets out about what she's done, it's now a scandal and the, the family's honor is at stake. We are dealing with exactly the same story here in the sense that Tamar's sexuality belongs to Judah as the father of that house, right? Cause she's not married yet, but she's promised to the third son. So her sexuality belongs to him. She steps out of that and we know it's with someone she's permitted to be with because Judah also could have performed the right of leveret marriage. She's allowed to sleep with him, but he doesn't know that, right? Nobody else knows who she slept with. So once again, we are in the very same situation we were last week. The honor of the family is at stake. The honor of Judah is at stake and of his son. Um, and he's going to be in big trouble getting trying to get a wife for his son, right? If Good. Now it's evident. It's not that word's going to get out. It's she's showing now, 
right? The baby bump is evident to everybody. So, um, so we're in exactly the same situation. He's bringing her out to be executed. Last week, who got executed? The men, <laughs> right? And, and the women and children were taken captive. Um, this week, who's, who gets punished? Her, the woman. She's brought out to be burned. She's brought out to be publicly executed. What she could have in that moment done what? She could have held up the cord and the seal and the staff and said, all right, y'all who are so quick to judge, y'all are so quick, right, to execute judgment, ultimate judgment. Uh, I'm pregnant by the guy who these belong to. She could have done that to defend herself. She didn't. She sent them in private. That was a huge risk. Why? What if he had decided to burn them and just get rid of it? Get rid of the evidence. She would have been burned alive. He could have done that. So we're learning something about who Tamar is, that she chooses not to humiliate Judah in front of everybody. And she protects his dignity. She protects and and leaves it up to Judah to decide, does he want to do the right thing? Or does he want to kill her knowing that it's his grandchild? I mean, his child that she's pregnant with. It's going to have the status of, you know, probably replacing his dead son, but whatever. So um, it's his child. Is he going to kill her? We, we don't know, right? But you can imagine if you're making this into a film, um, or in the case of Sarah Moskowitz writing a poem about it, you, you might fill in some of those gaps, right? You might decide to kind of sit with that scene for a little while. What's she thinking? She makes this very difficult decision to do it privately because she's risking her life and the life of her unborn child. I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. And he decides, he understands when he sees that seal and cord, he understands that he has been wrong, not just about wanting to kill her, but he's been wrong the whole time. He has wronged her. And she was more committed to doing what was right for the family than he was. She acted as the patriarch. She did his job. She did what he should have done. Ensure, you know, the male line through, uh, through him or his son. And in that moment, Judah changes. Something changes about Judah. We will see, so I want you to keep that, keep this story in mind as we look at the rest of the Joseph narrative. Judah is going to be very concerned about Benjamin. Remember, Joseph says you have to, you go get your brother Benjamin and bring him down here or else y'all are in seriously big trouble because he framed, right? And then he frames Benjamin. He can throw Benjamin. It's Judah who pleads for Benjamin's life and says to Joseph, take me, take me instead. It'll kill my father if something happens to Benjamin. That Judah is a Judah after this story. That's Judah who has lost two sons and almost killed his a fourth son, Tamar's baby, and, under, and has been seriously humbled right, by the experience with Tamar, It is that Judah that will plead for Benjamin's life. 
So you can't, you, I don't think you can read the rest of the Joseph novella with, and understand who Judah is without really understanding this story and what happens uh, for Judah in this, uh, in this story. And uh, we have this uh, amazing young woman um, who, who has been so patient, who has done everything she's supposed to, right? She does everything right and, and still is, is going to be executed. Um, and, and then even in the face of that, decides to protect the dignity of her father-in-law and trust that he will do the right thing, which, thank God, uh, he does. All right, questions, comments? Anybody want to say anything? Did she have a show more know that it was going to be coming I, I can't hear you, Bert. You keep, you're, you're cutting in and out. How did Tamar know that it was going to be Judah? How did she know that it was Judah? Yeah, she was she just playing the role of a prostitute. It could have been another man. Because she, when she slept with him, she took his cord and seal and staff. No, uh, when she went, uh, can you, I'm sorry, can you hear me? When she stood by the side of the road. Yeah. Playing the role of a prostitute. Yeah. Another man could have come along. But she doesn't have to sleep with him. No, but I mean, how did she know that Judah was going to be the one who would come along? She put herself in his path. She knew he was going sheep shearing. She put herself in front of him. She, she seduced Judah, essentially. She waited for him and made sure he saw her. And we have to imagine she took care of business, had her brows done, had her nails done, like, right? That she knows what she's doing. And she seduced Judah. She didn't have, she, she wasn't actually a prostitute. So she didn't have to sleep with anybody. So Ed is a little concerned about anti-Jewish sentiment um, because it's often based on the notion that Jews can't be trusted. Interesting. So who can't be trusted? Is it our guys from last week? They were taking revenge on something that had been done to their sister. She had been dishonored and defiled. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? In the ancient world, women Women need to do whatever women need to do to get the job done. If it means seducing your father-in-law, it means seducing your father-in-law. You do what you got to do to get it done. Now, is that dishonesty? Okay, we might say in our modern culture that the most important thing of all is honesty. That is not necessarily true in the ancient world. And certainly not necessarily true in the ancient Near East. From a lot of these stories, we have every reason to believe the wily, crafty, smart one was the one who was admired, right? The one who dies with the most toys is the most admired, right? Like that if you win, right? We certainly know something about that culture. Winning is everything, right? So it's who wins. It's not how you won. You're actually somebody who's smart. And takes advantage of your position and takes advantage of what you have as your resources. And if you win, if you succeed, that's a good thing. Now, can people take those stories and then decide to use them for anti-Semitic purposes? Of course. Absolutely. I just think, as always, we have to treat, 
we have to treat the text fairly, right, in its context and 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 its time. Mehmet, I see it's evening in Turkey. Um, hello, happy Hanukkah. Happy um, Hanukkah. Ha- honesty in the Near East may kill you in certain circumstances. So we shouldn't worry about what Gentiles think of us. We should think about remaining alive and doing the right, righteous thing. That's, that's what the text say, is telling us. So to Mehmet's point, if you, are told, if you are told you must eat bacon or I'm going to kill you, we have to eat the bacon, right? So for the most part, Judaism has said, live first, and you shall live by them, right? There's only three things you're supposed to die instead of do. So for the most part, it's just stay alive. You can, Maimonides, when he was asked by, by people who were being forced to convert, right, to, uh, to Catholicism during the, all that crazy. I mean, the, the question was, should we convert or risk our lives and remain Jewish? And he said, stay alive. You can worry about what it means later. You know what I mean? Keep your fingers crossed behind your back when you take your vows, you know, whatever. But just stay alive and then you can rectify what needs to be rectified. But you can't if you're dead. And so to Mehmet's point, first of all, the neighborhood um, was one where you there's just different rules right? about how think, think about going into the Shook. And I know it's a silly example, but think about it. You go into the Shook. And you ask the price of something. It is not expected that they're going to give you an answer and you all shake hands. It's just not how it's done. You ask the price. They tell you. You balk. You pretend to walk away. The lady, lady for you. Ten shekel. You know, like, and and this goes on and on and on. Deception, you know, kind of the game. The deception is built into so much of that that, um, interaction. Barry, you're trying to. So wear a mask if you want to stay alive. So wear a mask, Barry. Yeah, um, I wanted to, to to shine some light on the other side of the story that all these dece- deceptions, except that one, uh, have grave consequences. Um, and Jacob didn't have to steal the blessing. Um, he didn't have to make that vow uh, after he was uh, specifically promised all that he asked for in this, in this vow. Uh, it's just unnecessary action. It reminds me of Chinese wisdom, avoiding unnecessary action, unnecessary, uh, you know, all this hustle was for nothing. Because if Esau is uh, a sinful person, then he won't get, he won't be the one to continue the lineage of Abraham. You have to trust God and, and, um, and know that if you're righteous, you'll get yours. But the problem is we don't know Asav is not righteous. There is no indication of that in Torah. None. So Zero. he deserves the blessing. <laughs> right. So, right. Well, what would that have meant for Yaakov, right? And so, I mean, I think Torah actually believes that, that because remember, it's Rivka who believes that he needs to get that blessing. Rivka believes for him to be the patriarch and for him to be legit, he has to have that blessing. And the only way he's going to get it is deception. I mean, I hear what you're saying, that, that it doesn't seem necessary. It seemed necessary to Rivka to go to great and Everyone who, like I, like I said, everyone who does that, everyone who deceives gets 
deceived in his turn and faced the consequences. Uh, public humili humiliation, working for 14 years, getting, you know, uh, sold into slavery, um, you know, getting the iffy side of the blessing when Jacob is about to die. So there are consequences uh, for this deception. And, and you could have gotten the same thing without deceiving anyone. Okay. Except this one. This one stands out because well, uh, she was wronged and she, she was clearly wronged and she did something to defend herself. Um, and and that, that's why this one stands out and receives positive consequences of giving birth eventually to the Messiah, to, the, to King David. Right. So, we, so we're going to set up for maybe for Purim, we're going to set up a court and we're going to have people on either side arguing the case. <laughs> right. Does deception pay off in Torah? Or is it what goes around comes around, right? D does he need to do what he does or not? Right? We're gonna we're gonna have a, a case. Uh because Mehmet, you say the writer wants him to get the bracha. True. Um Barry's saying though he doesn't really need it, does he? Right. So we should we should set up a, a case and have people argue uh, either side. And what does Torah think about deception? I mean, I think that would be a great Take a pro and con um, side. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Um, when we first we practice to deceive, says Ed, yes, it is a tangled web. For sure, we can all agree that Torah for sure believes that. That we are human beings and it is a tangled web we weave as human beings. Absolutely. That for sure, Torah is making very clear. So, okay, Emma Linda says, uh, sidebar, but the bit about the crimson thread around the baby's wrist sounds like a story invented by a man very interested in lineage who has never witnessed an actual childbirth. It's <laughs> um, kind of an interesting story. Don't, don't you wish we had the rest of that story? Because you know, you know, that was a story we've lost. Like they kept the tagline in here about it. But you know, there's a whole tradition there that, that we've lost about why, why, why is it necessary to have the baby stick out its hand, get identified as the firstborn, then pull it back in and the other one comes out first, right? So now we have more twins, more male twins, more right, issue about who's first, who was born first. And we have this with Jacob and Esau. If you remember, Jacob right? That it's all about the heel. Um, so Barry says the crimson thread is still practiced in Israel, except with the crimson thread in Israel, right? It's about protection and it's about warding. Um, and yes, Madonna wears it. Um, so that's about warding, right? Using that color, you know, as a, as a color of warding to protect the mother and, or to help bring you your spouse, your intended, whatever. Um, but uh, this one was definitely about identification, um, this was, you know, the brace that you put on the baby in the hospital. <laughs> like this was, this is like identifying that, that this is the firstborn. This is the one who breached parrots, the one who breached the womb for the first time. All right. So, um, 
I also want to say, uh, as part of our study, Mazal Tov to Sarah Moskowitz, who has yes. um, a collection of poetry um, that I was honored to get a copy of yesterday. So um, those of you who know Sarah, Sarah's poetry, it's just it's so Beautiful. powerful and so meaningful. Um, and so now to have a published uh, copy is just fantastic. And Mazal Tov, Sarah. It's about time that we got a collection from you. So thank you. Thank you for putting that out in the world. Um, and maybe you can let us, let me know how I can tell people how they can get a copy. Um, Cause that would be lovely for everyone to have that. And if you don't know, Sarah's also a Yiddishist. So uh, she translates uh, beautifully um, from Yiddish. What is the title of the collection? Lee wants to know, Sarah. My journey. My journey. Okay. And, and a great one it's been. I mean, look at her. Look at, look at how beautiful she is in her 90s. Ugh, it's a machaya. All right. So um, any final thoughts, any final comments on our heroine, Tamar? Uh, Judith Ubik? It's very interesting to me to compare the deception done by men and the deception done by women because both do it, but the treatment is certainly different for women than for men. And, and the reasons they do it is different. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Because it's all about power. Right. And, and women, for women, it's, power. it's about life and lineage. And well, it's often about lineage for the men too, but in a different way. Right. Right. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's about, you know, it's about controlling what, what you don't in any other way have control over. Right. Right. Isaac has a choice about to whom he wants to give the blessing. Rebecca doesn't. Right. She can only persuade him or manipulate him or trick him. Same with Tamar. Same with Tamar. Exactly right. She can't say, excuse me, if you're not giving me your son, then I claim myself as a, you know, emancipated widow. She can't do that. She doesn't have any other options. So for women, deception is almost a last resort. Yes, for sure. For sure. Because you have to imagine the risk that they take, right? Rebecca loses Jacob forever. She never sees him again. So while she was successful, she never sees him again. And, you know, so the cost is super high often, even of their success. So if they're caught or even if they succeed, you know, I mean, Asaph finds out he was he was going to have to find out. And when the women are found out, the consequences are often really high. So, yeah, deception, that's the last thing you want to use. You want to start with persuasion. <laughs> right. And we have to imagine Rivka tried to persuade Isaac for a really long time before she realized this is not going anywhere. Um, but yeah, because the minute you use deception, you now risk, like we see with Tamar, you risk everything. You risk your life. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website www.ourki.org